I want to ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians. I'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. I suspect for many of you, this is a very familiar passage. You may be aware, as I read it, that I'm only going to be reading a, a portion of it, that the passage actually has two parts. There is the part that relates to the humiliation of Christ, which we will be reading. And then immediately afterward, there's a therefore, and then it talks about the exaltation of Christ. I'm today going to be focusing on the humiliation that Christ endured and suffered for us and our salvation. I want to thank you for the opportunity of being with you and the session for the invitation to come and to lead us in the worship of God through the preaching this morning. Let's give attention now to the word of our Lord as we find it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. This is the word of the Lord. Question that I bring to you this morning is a question that is for each one of you, though it may be unique to each one of you as well. Some of you may not know the Lord at all. And this might be an invitation for you to think about the one who has revealed to us in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Redeemer. But I suspect that many of you do know the Lord, walk with the Lord, have been walking with the Lord perhaps for decades even. And yet the question is for us just as much as it is for anyone else with us this morning. Do you know your God? And for us it would be an invitation to pause, to meditate, to be invited in deeper to the knowledge of God and into the enjoyment of our God. And so that's the question this morning, do you know your God? And what I mean by that is, do you understand him? I'm not asking if you know a lot about him, if you know many things that theologians put into books about God. That of course is vitally important. You can't know God in truth, you can't know God personally without knowing things about God. I'm not denigrating that in any way. And you can only know God better and deeper the more you know about him. But we must be careful not to, think, to confuse knowing things about God with knowing God himself. And that's the question that I'm asking this morning. My question this morning is do you know God himself? Do you know him like you know your spouse or your children? or your parents, or maybe like that dear brother or sister or closest friend that you have where you can finish their sentences for them? Do you know your God like you know yourself from the inside, personally, deeply, profoundly, perhaps even better than you know yourself? 
Do you know his mind? Do you know what his mind is set on? Do you know who it is set on? What are the things that God counts as precious and dear? What are the things that he delights in, that he loves, and that he wants, and that he wants for those he loves? That's what I'm getting at here. That's the question for us this morning. It's really a question that this text itself poses to us. Paul here is writing to the Philippians. The Philippians were our church. They were saints gathered together like we are this morning. And yet he's talking to them and instructing them about some very practical things, about humility and what it's like to serve others and how to put one another above yourself and the interest of others ahead of your own. And then he says, do you know your God? Because that's the way your God is. That's the kind of God we have. And that's what brings him to this profoundly rich and uh, theological passage about Christ. The simple questions about how we love one another. So the text itself is putting this question to us. Paul put this question to the Philippians and the Spirit has inspired him to do so and for this to be in our scriptures because the Spirit is putting this question to us each time we read it, each time we hear it. Do we know our God? Well, knowing your God like this is eternal life. You remember that Jesus declares as much when he prays to his Father. Do you remember the scene? He's praying for his disciples. He's doing so on the very night that he's about to be betrayed and taken away to be crucified. Where is his heart and mind that night as he's gathered with his disciples in the upper room? Yes, he knows what he's about to endure. He's about to go out into the garden and sweat drops of blood, as it were, in agony over the cross. And yet in that room, his mind and his heart are on his disciples. And he's trying to prepare them for everything that is about to go down. For him being taken away and being crucified. And he says, this is eternal life. That they may know you, praying aloud in their hearing. The only true God. This is the eternal life that Christ has the authority to give to all the Father has given to him. And this is the eternal life that he laid down his life. That we might have. And what is it to know God, to know him in, in spirit and in truth, but to know his heart, to know the frame and, and the set of his mind? And this, this is the crucial point here, this is precisely what Christ makes known to us. Here in this passage is the mind of your God toward you in Christ Jesus. Let me read it again. Who? Though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the mind, the heart, the character of your God. This is who your God is, the one who claims you for himself, the one who loves you and me, the unlovely and otherwise unlovable. This is the mind of the one who is love, the mind of the one who is full of grace and truth. 
and the original and ultimate source of all grace and truth. This is the mind of our God as it is revealed to us in Jesus Christ who is God in himself, God with us, God in the flesh, God in human, creaturely, servant, and subservient form, obedient to the point of death, Paul writes, even death on a cross for us and our salvation. If you will know your God, brothers and sisters, not just know about him, but to know him, to know him so as to understand him, to know him as he is, to know him according to what he is really and actually like. Beyond all of the, the vanity of our imaginations and all the speculations and misconceptions about God that, and the skewed teachings and false imaginings that swirl around us and sometimes arise within us and sometimes are found even in our own thinking. If you will know your God, brothers and sisters, then you must look to Jesus Christ because here is your God in the flesh. Here in Jesus Christ is your God divesting himself of all the glory and honor that he is due, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, submitting to the humiliation of the cross, stripped, beaten, mocked, and crucified. Do you know your God? Your God. He is the one who freely denies himself his rights as he submits to every kind of injustice, to being condemned in our place, to dying our death in order to save us, those who are by nature children of wrath and his enemies from our sin. Jesus Christ is the fullest and most complete revelation of God there is precisely because he is God in himself. The only begotten God become man in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily as Paul writes elsewhere to the Colossians. Think on this with me for a moment. There is a common error that we must eliminate from our minds. It's the thought that we see reflected in Philip's request in the upper room that Jesus would finally show them the Father and that would be enough. Perhaps you remember this scene as well. Again, on the same night when Jesus is betrayed and taken away to be condemned and crucified, he is thinking of and caring for and ministering to his disciples, preparing them for what is about to go down. And though he is soon to be crucified, he is spending his time and his energy comforting them, urging them not to let their hearts be troubled by everything that is about to happen. And he urges them to believe in God and also in him and to know that he is going to prepare a place for them so that where he is going, they might come also and be with him forever and ever. And he tells them that there is no other way to enter in than through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he adds, if you had known me, you have known my father also. And from now on, you do know him 
and have seen him. But Philip has that misconception lingering in his mind and he wants to know God himself. He has a good heart in that regard. He wants to know God himself as he conceives of God. That is, he wants to know the Father, the Father that Jesus is speaking of here. And yet Philip has just completely missed Jesus' point, hasn't he? The whole point was lost on him. And too often the whole point is completely lost on us along with Philip in this. We begin to think like Philip, and as Philip thinks here, as if Jesus is Jesus, but the Father, now that's really God. As if there is a God in back of Jesus Christ somewhere, higher up and, and behind him someplace, that, that if we get through Jesus, we might actually get to God or something like that. As if Jesus Christ is a, is a knockoff copy of the divine and not the fullness of God himself in bodily form. And notice how Jesus responds to Philip's question. Philip says, show us the Father and it is enough. And Jesus responds, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Do you feel the weight of that answer? Show us the Father, Philip says, and, and Jesus says, have I been with you this long and you still don't know me? Do you know your God, brothers and sisters? Here in Jesus Christ is your God in all the fullness of his deity. Though only the Son becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ, the Son is one and the same God with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus explains this. If you had known me, he tells Philip, you would have known my Father also. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. One God. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Philip had just devoted the last three years of his life to being discipled by Christ very intensively. And he still did not know or understand his God. And he did not really know or understand Jesus, therefore. Even though he was standing, that is, God himself was standing in human form right in front of him, he was missing him. We must banish any sneaky sense that we may have that Jesus is less that he is somehow not God in his fullness in the flesh. Only then will we begin to understand who our God is and what he is truly like as he has revealed his mind and heart to us in Jesus Christ. Only in this light can we begin to feel the weight of this passage here that we've read in Philippians and begin to understand, begin to feel the weight of what it means when it says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and most shockingly of all became obedient to the point of death and that by way of a cross. Who loves you like this but your God, your God? In the mind of Christ on earth, we see the mind of God in heaven revealed. 
Here is the eternal Son of God, one with the Father and the Spirit, co-equal in glory and honor and power and dignity, through whom all things were created, by whose word the universe is presently upheld and holds together, for whose glory everything that is exists. And here he is. Though he was in the very form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself denied himself all the honor and the glory that was due him as the very Son of God and became one with us in order to die for us. This is your God and this is your God at work and that, brothers and sisters, is the revelation of who he is. The thing that even the angels longed to look into that they did not see and understand about him until his grace was fully displayed in Jesus Christ for lost sinners. This is how meek and how humble and how gracious your God is. This is, this is what he is really like. This is what it means to be godly, for us to be like him. And this is how much he loves you. This is how great the love that he has determined to set upon you is toward you. And do you see here how God is the very opposite of sin? And our sinfulness is the very opposite and contrary to God. Think of the contrast here that Paul clearly has in mind. Adam and Eve were not in the very form of God, were they? But they were created in God's image and crowned with dignity and honor and set in a lush and an exquisite garden and given wonderfully rich and delightful work to do. And the pleasure and right to enjoy all the fruit of their labor was set before them. Everything was very good and ordered to their happiness by a loving and kind God so that if they continued and persevered in obedience, they would have continued into an enjoyment, not just of God's creation, created gifts, but of God himself and of each other. But they, unlike Christ, unlike God in Jesus Christ, counted equality with God a thing to be grasped. And they tried for it, didn't they? They tried to grasp it. And what they ended up doing was not becoming like God, but becoming the opposite of what is godliness in us. They twisted themselves and all their posterity after them, us, into the very opposite of God in their frame of mind in terms of godliness. And precisely the way that we were created and called by God to be like God, their minds became set exactly contrary to the mind of God. And in our minds, we became twisted and, dare I say, even satanic, caring only for our selfish desires and thoughts and ambitions, ungodly in the most profound sense possible, self-serving, self-seeking, self-dealing, selfishly absorbed and obsessed, so far from denying ourselves and becoming nothing that we try to supplant God and clutch our privileges and demand our rights and want to, be, to bend the whole world to our will and to glorify ourselves with the glory that only God deserves. And then we hate whatever impedes us and gets in our way and frustrates us. And then we sit and stew in bitterness and resentment when we're defeated. That's anti-godliness to its core. 
And the whole time we go about in our sin like this, here is our God, the creator assuming a created nature, the Lord of all becoming a servant to all, the supreme lawgiver submitting to the law, and even to its condemnation of death, becoming obedient to the point of death, the Lord of glory crucified for us and our salvation. Where is the one, brothers and sisters, who does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counts others more significant than himself, who looks not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others, who lays down his life for those who once denied him, who befriends those who hate and despise him, who returns good for evil, blessing those who openly hate and persecute him, interceding even for the very ones who are at work crucifying him. Where is the one who freely and willingly dies a death he did not deserve, that had no rightful claim on him in order to save forever his own enemies and crucifiers? Who, brothers and sisters, has the right and the power to demand universal worship, that even the rocks should cry out in honor to him, but chooses freely, voluntarily, willingly to be mocked and shamed and crucified instead? Is there anyone as pure, as righteous, as selfless as Jesus? Is there anyone so perfect in love for his enemies and his friends and the enemies he befriends who refuse to vindicate who refuses to vindicate himself even as he suffers and dies under false accusations condemned by civil and ecclesial authorities alike and counted a curse by God and the whole world as I say, even the angels long to understand these things, Peter writes. They long to understand the greatness of God's grace toward us because they long to understand their God and our God. Do you know your God? Do you understand what kind of grace he has lavished on us so, richless, so richly and relentlessly in Jesus Christ? Do you know his frame of mind toward you, his own? Do you understand what he has set his mind on in Jesus Christ? Be still and let the full weight of it all fall on you and let the gospel penetrate your heart anew and let it teach you and let it teach us all about the God who loves you like this. Do you know your God? I pray that you do. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, we thank you that you have not left us to our sin and nor have you left us in the dark, but you have caused the light of your own truth, of your own being, of your own glory, to shine upon us in Jesus Christ who is full of grace and truth. 
who is the very radiance of the divine glory, shining brightly into this world, who is God with us. May you lift our hearts and our minds to see Christ this day and in him to know you. We ask in his name and to the praise of his glory. Amen.